imagine if I went to the store and bought this single rose for my wife. And I came home, walked into the kitchen, and I told my wife, Michelle, this is for you. See, my wife said, well, why? It's really nice, but why? I could answer it in two ways. And how I answer it really matters. I could say, well, I'm your husband, and I'm supposed to buy you this flower. I read in a book that it said, if you want, I've read the five love languages, and I know you like gifts, and I'm supposed to do this, so here you go. And I give it to her, and I walk out the door. Or, like Ken does every day to his wife, brings home a flower and says, because I want to. One word changes everything. Actually, I heard this illustration 20 years ago when it comes to serving God. We can do things out of duty for him. We can do things because we read it in a book. Or we can do things because we want to. We really want to. And today we're going to meet a man, his whole life, all he wanted was to not just do the will of God, but to know God. We sang one of his songs this morning. Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere, because he loved the Lord. If you can open up to 1 Samuel 16, we are continuing our glory day study. The title of this is, God wants, want. That's what he wants. And we're going to see it exampled in a man by the name of David. It's the first time we meet David, and David's an amazing guy. We're going to begin in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to work through this passage, probably 15 verses. But let's just read for the, through the first five. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? If you remember last week, Saul, Saul crossed the red line. And God rejected him. Samuel missed him. Samuel loved Saul. And God said, How long are you going to grieve over this guy? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. That's, he would bring this horn filled with oil to anoint another king. Fill your horn, horn with oil. And go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Interesting city, Bethlehem. Comes across in our Christmas stories. Bethlehem means house of bread. That's the city he's from. Why is he to go to Jesse? Well, because I provided for myself a king from among his sons. So out of Jesse, that is a branch out of Jesse. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. So Samuel's scared of Saul because he knows Saul is angry. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. And he shall anoint for me, you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So basically God is done with Saul. 
He told Samuel, go to Bethlehem. You'll meet a guy named Jesse who has sons. Find my man, my new king, from Jesse's sons. The key to this passage, however, and our story today, is found in verse 6 and 7. Read the next two verses. When they came, meaning Jesse and his sons, when they came, he looked on Eliab, which is Jesse's oldest, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here he is. This is God's next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, and here's the verse, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Read that again. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is a very simple sermon outline from this verse. Just three points I have to make. Point number one is God is made God is different uniquely than us in one aspect, and we're going to talk about that. Secondly, we're going to talk about how man sees, and then thirdly, we're going to talk about how God sees. Very simple. So let's first start with this. I will say before we begin, you'll understand this. I mean, even as you read, it's very clear. The message is clear. However, we don't live like this at all. And because we don't live like this, because it's not our natural bent, many people are insecure, full of shame, loaded down with depression, always feel inadequate like failures, and they're just not satisfied with who they are or life. And it's because you don't live by this. I don't live by this. But if we do, we will be completely different. This is how scripture can change us. It's meant to rearrange your mind but we read it as if it's just a nice little story we close the book and we go seeing the way we always see and you'll understand in a second in the middle of verse 7 there's a single descriptive statement explaining what makes God different from us simple the Lord sees not as man sees the Lord sees not as man sees we see differently Isaiah 55, 8 says that God's ways are not our ways. And this is never more true than how, it, how we value a human being, how we place value on what's important. We don't do it the way God does, and it gets us into all kind of trouble, personally. 18 years ago, I was invited by Mike Carew to go up north to the UP. He wanted to take me and Pastor Ken up to see his cabin, and just just, to, just basically experience the beauty of the UP. I've never been up there. The drive is about three and a half to four hours where he took us. Many of you have taken it. You guys know that route up to the UP. I sat in the back of his truck, and as I sat, I just looked out on the beautiful landscape of Michigan. Pine trees, forests of pine trees, rolling hills little cabins by little rivers going by. I mean, it's beautiful. And as we're driving through, all of a sudden, Mike goes, did you see that? I said, I see what? Look, in the cornfields, way in the back, do you see it? That It's an eight-point buck. I said, I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't see anything. We're driving a little bit longer. Literally five minutes later, do you see that right? The silhouette right on the edge of the forest. It's a whole family of deer. I said, Mike, I don't, I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't see it. 
And literally, he started training me how to see. He goes, just look. And all of a sudden, you see there's a deer there. He would see pheasant. He would see, he'd see everything. I remember even when we were up in the UP, he saw a coyote out in the back. Like, how do you see that? He's got a hunter's eye. It's trained. It's keen towards that thing. I was just used to seeing the obvious, the beauty. He's used to seeing deeper. This is what this verse is all about. God sees deeper than just the obvious. That's the first part that makes him unique. He goes deeper. He looks into a man's heart. He looks for want. That's really what he looks for, is want and desire of him. So what do we see? If we keep reading, look at verse 7 again. It says, man sees outward appearance. You know you do. I do. It's our default mode. It's exactly how we live. When we see someone for the first time, we look them up and down. We don't say it, but we do. We look them up and down. We listen to their speech patterns. We critique their clothing style. We evaluate their hairstyle, their body odor, their skin color. We do. It's our default mode. That's how we judge. When we come to church, we do the same thing. We look across the aisle. We look at somebody and say, why are they wearing that? I'm not sure you should wear that for Jesus. Do they raise their hands? Do they let their kids dance in church? <laughs> we evaluate. Some of you look over. We evaluate. Everything we do, we evaluate. Do they smile? Do they not smile? Do they sing loud? Do they have a swollen face? Do they have arms closed? Oh, their arms are closed. Oh, man, are they bitter people. Maybe they got a bad back. You never know. You never know. And then what we do is we internally grade from hypocrite, fake, trashy, snooty, wallflower. They think they're better than me. Ah, oh, he's cool. Notice most of our critiques are negative. We're be honest. The Bible, it's interesting, the Bible gives us criterias that we value, give value to somebody by. And there's three verses that are very clear. This one gives us the obvious value, appearance. Samuel is looking for somebody of stature and beauty, handsome, strong. Saul was handsome, strong, a head taller than everybody. Man, it's funny, I was at the state track meet yesterday, and you just notice that guy runs a 200, that guy's a shot putter, that guy stinks. You can just tell by stature and style and size. You see ladies walking by who thinks everybody's looking at them. Have you ever noticed a woman who thinks everybody's looking at them? They don't look at anybody, but they know everybody's looking. It's, we look at appearance. Jeremiah 9.23 gives three more criteria and I would call these criteria the divergent criteria if you ever read the story of the divergent what class are you intelligent talks about you know those who think they're intelligent those who are strong with ability those who can do things well and then rich rich people and then Philippians 3 5 to 6 gives us the criteria of the 
what I would say the morally good person. Paul's evaluating what we consider morally good things. Religious works. Does this person do religious works? I mean, do they just do good things? Family. What family do they come from? Oh, they're from that family. Huh. That's why. Oh, they're from that family? We evaluate that way. And then also titles and honors. If you got Jared is now a reverend, doesn't that make you feel so much better? Reverend or doctor. How would you like to have a doctorate? Or, you know, have a Ph.D., D.D.S. Oh, man. These are the big eight. Appearance, height, stature, intelligence, ability, riches, works, family identity, and title and honor. The more you have, the more valuable you are, and you believe that. You actually believe that. You live by that. How many of these do you have? Think about it. How many of those do you have? Because the more you think you have, the more valuable you believe yourself to be. And you believe somebody else to be. We don't say we do, but we do every day. How many of these do you lack, which makes you feel like a failure, especially when you look in the mirror? How many of these do you lie about to try to convince others you are better than you actually are in that category? These are the big eight. Do you know what Paul says about the big eight in Philippians 3.8? As compared to knowing Christ, they're rubbish. Trash. Worthless. As compared to knowing Christ. I mean, for man, yeah, sure, but who are we seeking the affinity of? God. Compared to knowing Christ, they're garbage. Most people try to live their lives to obtain the big eight. We waste our worries on how do I look? How strong am I? How smart am I? How rich am I? And then this is when Derek Max's voice comes in. You heard it two weeks ago. Who cares? Who stinking cares? Remember he said, who cares? Says it like that with the beard. Who cares? That's perfect. When it comes to those big eight, who cares? Isaiah 64, 6 actually says, if you put any of these things, specifically good works, to try to prove worth as compared to the worth of Christ, they are filthy rags. And I'm not going to tell you what the Hebrew actually means. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it's the reverse. He says, we have this treasure inside of us, but we are jars of clay which means we're brittle, we break easy, we're fragile. But we have this treasure inside of this fragility to show that all of our power isn't from us, but it's from God. That's how man sees. What does God see? 1 Samuel 16 says, God sees the heart. God is the hunter with the keen eye looks past all of the obvious things and he goes down deep and he sees the heart the heart in biblical language means the control center of your soul you can say it's really who you are deep down it's not all the cosmetics on the outside it's if you go to the core and you drill down that's who you really are it's your heart and what God wants is he wants someone who wants him that's what we're going to find in the rest of the story. Watch verse 6 through 11. Verse 6, he's looking for the next king. And Jesse brings his oldest son, Eliab, and 
Saul, I mean, Samuel's excited about this guy. He must have been another good looker because he goes, surely this is the guy. God says, nope. Then verse 8, next son, Abinadab, nope. Verse 9, the third son, Shama, nope, uh-uh. He says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen these. So he had seven sons, not one of them. It's funny how it keeps reading. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And it's almost like he said, well, there's the youngest kid, you know, young boy. People think probably around, his, David was around 15 or 16 at this time. But the way that Jesse kind of, yeah, he's out watching the sheep. Watching sheep's not a big thing. Kind of a mundane job, making sure there's no wolves and bears and just watching them eat grass all day, kind of useless job. Well, Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. So they waited. And what's interesting, it says at the beginning of verse 12, and he sent and brought him. Okay, just stop right there. Normally, the first time Samuel saw Saul, he said, wow, this guy's something else. Like he says, taller. This guy's it. The first time he saw Eliab, he said, surely this is the Lord's man. But if you notice, Samuel doesn't say anything about David. There's no wow. There's no personal word from Samuel. However, the narrator, which is from the Spirit of God, says this about Sam or David. It's very interesting. I wrote about it in my blog more deeply, but I find this fascinating. Listen to how it says it in ESV. He was ruddy, which means he had kind of like an amber color hair or red hair, but more the idea is that his life, his skin was just sun glazed from being outside. All he's ruddy. You can tell he's a he's a man that sort of works hard. He's he's of the earth. He's ruddy. He had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. That's how the narrator describes him. It's funny, when the narrator describes Saul back earlier in verse, chapters 9 and 10, it said Saul was handsome, but it never said he had beautiful eyes. And I was wondering, is there, is there, in the Hebrew, is there something to this beautiful eyes? When you read it in different translations or you read the actual Hebrew, the idea is his countenance, his countenance was bright. A countenance in biblical language means your, the expression, the physical expression of yourself to display your inside. That's what a countenance is. Handsome is just your physical appearance. Scholars would say the symmetry of your looks. You would make a good magazine cover. Countenance is different. Countenance is that person. You ever met a person that maybe necessarily they aren't that pretty, but when you meet them, they're gorgeous? It shines. David had beautiful eyes. They were compelling. So you could say it like this. Saul was impressive, but David was attractive and compelling. Something to this man. He'd be a guy who comes into a room and leave, and you'd say, who was that guy? He's that kind of person. And I was thinking, is there anything to this? Have you ever, and, and this is just a personal side, this is something personally for me, have you ever noticed people who really, and I mean really know God, not professors, possessors, people who really know God, there's something beautiful about them. 
There just is. I, I've told you often, this guy, my, one of my first teachers at Moody, his name was Dr. Thrasher. He was five foot seven. I think he's 135 pounds. But when he, you know, you'd kind of look at him when he came in, and he would always do that with his hair, kind of kind of walk a little funny. But then somebody would ask him a question, and he would think. And then when he would talk, out would come like pearls of wisdom. And it was just, people loved going to his class. After class, you could see students following him around the hallways, just talking to him. He had that. I think David had that. I want that. Whatever it is. Jesus, uh, well, one more thing I want to say. Scripture does describe David in Acts 13.22. If you could turn to Acts 13.22, say that seven times fast, and your son will laugh at you. Acts 13.22. This is uh, just a characterization of David taken from 1 Samuel uh, 13. Acts 13.22. And Paul's talking about how David was typified in the Old Testament. And verse 22 says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David, meaning when he took away Saul, when God took away Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified. God testified to David and said this about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And then basically kind of describes what that means. He, will do my, he wants to do my will. A man after God's own heart wants what God wants. And God wants you to want him more than anything. You can read, if you want to read some powerful psalms, read Psalm 62 and 63. Read Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you. David wanted God. If we go, now go to John, I want you to see this very clearly. Jesus get, you know, he'll describe, I gave you a VIP list of what we evaluate. I'm going to give you a VIP list of what Jesus evaluates. This is his criteria found in John 4 from Jesus' own words. You want to know what you need to be pleasing to God? This is John 4.23. This is when he's meeting the woman at the well and talking about there's going to come a day where you don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship God. You'll be able to worship him anywhere. And in verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here because he's the hour. <laughs> Jesus is when everything changes. He's saying the hour is now here because he's there. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers... The true worshipers will worship the Father in two things, spirit and in truth. That's what God's looking for, those two things. What does that mean? Spirit. It's very simple. Most commentators describe it like this. It's sincerity over formality. It's a person who really wants God without, he doesn't need to show it, he just does. The Pharisee was all formality. They'd wear long robes. They'd have their chins high and arrogance, acting pious. 
But the spiritual man is the man who's born from above, John 3, born anew, and there's children, and they want to know their dad. And they don't need a show. It's sincerity over formality. Second thing is truth. Worshippers in truth. And listen to this very closely, because this is very important. A person who worships in truth is a person who worships God as he truly is, not as you want him or wish him to be. A worshiper of truth is a person who worships God as he truly is, not as you wish him to be. They allow God to define himself, and they fall on their knees to how he has revealed himself. They accept him as he describes himself in his word rather than warping the word to worship the God they want. That's called idolatry. So this is the heart God is looking for. I think it's pretty clear. Now if we go back to 1 Samuel, I want to um, show you something very interesting. And I'm going to leapfrog off a verse that I've always found fascinating. Go back to 1 Samuel 16. And I call this moment, this is the kind of traffic you want to get caught up into. I call this the rush hour. Watch how this works. I'm going to jump off of a verse and show you how it works in David's life. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this. So God's out hunting. We said God's looking for hearts. And it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, The eyes of the Lord are searching the whole earth. They're searching the whole earth, looking at all kind of people. That's what it means. In order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So he, like a hunter, with his keen eyes, is not looking at outward appearance. He's looking at the heart, looking for hearts that want him. And he finds a heart that wants him, he's going to strengthen them. How does he strengthen them? Watch what happens to David. I love how it's written in the ESV. It's uh, 1 Samuel 16, 13. This is so cool. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. And that's a, that is a metaphor of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. He took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That's how David was strengthened. He knew this is a man after my own heart, and I'm going to strengthen him. How? With my spirit. And when he strengthened him, look at the kind of man he became in verse 18. Saul was, uh, from verse 14 to 18, Saul is this guy that kind of becomes a depressed, disgruntled, angry man. And he needed somebody to help soothe his spirit and they found a musician by the name of David. Same guy. And look at verse 18 how it describes him. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's skillful in playing. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech. A man of good presence and the Lord is with him. The reason why he's a man of valor, a good speech, good presence, is because the Lord is with him. He's been strengthened. 
And because he's been strengthened, he's a different kind of person. He's not the kind of person that looks in the mirror to make sure his selfie looks good. He's just compelling. You might say, yeah, but that's David. I am different. I'm weak. I'm small. I'm dull. The rush hour can't be meant for me. And if that's what you're saying, you have to stop right there because you forgot everything I said. That's rubbish. We are so quick to say, yeah, but that's David. I'm not that strong. God does not look at that, that stuff to anoint you with his power. He looks at a heart. He wants those who want him. And when you believe the gospel, it says it in Ephesians chapter 1, those who hear the word and believe him, he anoints or he gives the Holy Spirit as a seal, guaranteeing redemption. And that spirit's alive in you. The rush hour is meant for us. That's the beauty of it. And when you let the spirit take over your life, you become a strong, compelling person, regardless of how you look. I want to close on this illustration. Imagine, have you seen the uh, construction over by the bank over there? New strip malls going in over there. Did you know that? Four stores. You know Gayla Quiet. It's my illustration. She already knows what's going in there. I'm imagining Gayla four stores are going in over there. And because we are so close to that, They've given each one of you a lifetime membership to every one of those stores. But you can only go in one store a day. You can spend as much as you want. They don't charge you. So once you go in, you can do whatever you want in that store, and then when you come out, you're done for the day. And then the next day, you can choose whatever store you want. The first store is its going to be called Candy Carnival. It's going to have every type of candy ever made. There's going to be a whole bin, a whole bin of orange circus peanuts. Amazing. Can it get Snickers? You can get get all that old saltwater taffy. You get you remember they used to have those long sticks of bubble gum and you chew them. They walk. I'll have that. It's great stuff in there. Try spending a whole day in a candy store. Try having four circus peanuts at once. Jared did this past week. He walked out of my office in no less than thirty seconds, and his stomach was already churning. You get sick. That's one of your options. Imagine one of those stores is the video arcade with lights, buzzers, highest scores, course. You know, you, you're always going to have the game over, but you can keep playing because you want to get the highest score. So more action, more buzzers. And every day they're going to have a new kind of cool game, even though they're kind of all the same. They just look a little bit different. Some are shooting games, some are high scoring games. But then when you leave that store, your stomach's not sick, but your time is gone. You'll never get that time back. And nothing was accomplished except you got high score. There's another store over there. It's going to be called For Men Only, Adult Bookstores and Strip Club. Dancers, peep shows, books, magazines for, you know, more women are just as excited about that stuff too. So anybody can go. However, when you leave that store, you're never satisfied. And when you leave, you're full of shame and you're a little bit a lower, more, you're a little more twisted than you were before you went in there. 
there's this really cool fourth store. It's called the Monte Cristo Travel Agency. Once you walk into the store, they give you a map. And in that map, you walk through a door and instantly you're on this island of Monte Cristo. It's a beautiful island out in the Mediterranean. It has caverns, caves. You follow that map. And then sometimes it's tough because you've got to go through a rough terrain. But it takes you down to the bottom of the island where there's, there's chests full of treasure. And you can load your pockets up there. And as much as you can get for the day, you can leave that store with treasure. But if you want to get more treasure, you've got to go back in there every day. It's not easy necessarily to get the treasure because you've got to follow the map. Sometimes it's windy, rainy, but it guarantees you every time you go down there, you'll get treasure. But when you leave, not only did you have an incredible experience, but you have more. more. You can go to the candy store and be sick. You can go to the video store and just be numb. You can go to the adult store, even though I wouldn't, I hate using the word adult because it's just the fool store and be more twisted. Or you can go into a place that it's not easy, but it is rewarding every single day. That's what it's like entering into this, a life with your God. He changes you every time you go in and see him. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Why, why do we think riches should ever be handed to us? Oh, it's so boring. There's a reason. God wants those who want to seek him. He gave me this Monte Cristo map. It's, I don't want to read a map. But there's treasure at the bottom of the map. Ah. Uh, I'll go back to the candy store. It's easy pickings there. What do you want? I mean, really, what do you want? Because what it is you want, you'll get. But you have to answer that question. Nobody else can. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, we really are privileged to be able to know your word. There's some people that lack the resources to buy a Bible. There's people that are not even in an area where they can get one. We, have, we are flush with scripture. We also have the privilege, if we've accepted Christ, to have the spirit of God alive in our lives. Help us, God, not to be satisfied with things that just make us sick or things that end up empty or things even that twist us, that have actually things that have caused our Savior to die. Help us, God, to go after things that are precious. Give us the desire, the endurance, the curiosity to find in you all of our lives' treasure. But Holy Spirit, you have to rush down upon us to give us that desire. Please do that. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray.